Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Growing up um, on the corner dairy with my parents and any person that came into our store was to be treated equally. 248 years since Captain Cook landed. 14 years since Whale Rider was released. Keisha Castle Hughes is speared through the heart by a white man with a ship. When you're dealing with people who are in the throes of addiction, and it's just much easier to, to exploit them. She was born in 1902. Her birth didn't have to be registered because she was Māori. So far, Minnie is the only Chinese woman on the petition that we know of. Hello, I'm Sonia Sly, and this is Beyond Kate, a podcast exploring women's suffrage 125 years after women gained the right to vote in New Zealand. And in this episode, we're exploring cultural diversity. We'll look at Māori suffragists, but also at New Zealand's cultural landscape and how it's changed. We know now of about six Māori women who have signed the petition. First up, Stephanie Lash from Archives New Zealand, who you've heard through the series. But they've signed using Pākehā names, and so they've only been discovered through the research that's gone on, and that makes me think that there will be many more Māori women on the petition who have also signed under Pākehā names. And we'll get on to the issues around names through the episode. And quite often you can see when you look at the petition that people have not signed with a full name. They have signed Mrs J Smith or M.G. Alcorn is the first signature on the petition here. So that could be a woman, it could be a man. There are some men on the petition as well. Only by eventually researching every single woman on the petition will we be able to find out exactly how many women, how many men, how many Māori women, Pākehā women and women of other ethnicities as well. The fact that these missionaries came in to colonise or civilise the Māoris, the fact that Māori women were essentially more progressive in terms of their, their lifestyle and their status than any Pākehā woman could have been. The missionary role is a really complex one. Author, feminist and local body politician Sandra Coney. I've actually just been reading a book about this, about interracial marriage uh, in New Zealand and this kind of history of it. Missionary women who were meant to be the sort of models of propriety and, and submissive to their husbands, in fact, played really, really key roles, as a lot of those colonial um, women did, in their own right to start schools, to um, be out in their communities, to put up with all sorts of hardships and separations from their husbands. So there's a sort of paradox there in that they had the image of being, you know, like the perfect helpmate to the man, but in fact they were actually quite strong women, but they couldn't speak out in a way that Māori women could have spoken out at the time. But they could, you know, ride on horseback and have the physical freedom that the Pākehā women that arrived in New Zealand didn't have for a long time. You had these Māori women who were coming into this uh, Pākehā institution... Meet Lizzie Marvelly. She's a singer, columnist for The Herald, a public speaker on women's issues, and she's currently co-producing a documentary about Māori suffragists called He Māngai Wahine. 
and in it she's interviewing descendants of Māori women who signed the petition. One of those women was... Meritetai Mangakahia was only 24 when she stood at the Kotahitanga in the lower house of the Māori Parliament in May 1893. And presented a motion on behalf of all of the, the women asking for women to be enfranchised, to be able to vote. And also, you know, she went a step further and she asked for women to be able to stand. That was the same year the suffrage petition went through Parliament. She also formed Na Komiti Wahine, or tribal-based Māori women's committees. These were set up across the country and were in many ways the Māori equivalent of the WCTU. She was basically brought up by a very powerful uh, father. Her father was a rangatira and she was at his feet uh, as he was going around to to hui, to runanga at the time. And so she kind of grew up just absorbing leadership through osmosis and she was very intelligent, she was very well educated. Um, She went on to marry a a very powerful man in his own right, um, Hamiora Mangakahia. The two of them were so kind of well matched that they they were hugely influential in the Kotahitanga, but Meritetai Mangakahia was only one woman of the, the many who were actually rangatira in their own right. So who were some of the other key figures in the Māori suffrage movement? Another one who springs to mind would be Akanehito Moana. She stands up after Meritetai Mangakahia in support of her, but also to kind of say that she didn't think that this was the time for that. She was a very influential woman in um, Kahungunu. There's also Niniwe Tirangi, who was heavily involved in the Kotahitanga, and she won an enormous amount of land through the the courts and she actually won against the government, which was kind of quite a landmark decision. Her cousin Tamaho was one of the rangatira who was heavily involved in the kotahitanga. So Niniwa was actually sent out as an ambassador for the kotahitanga to go around the the North Island to, uh, you know, talk to Iwi and Hapu about joining the movement. She also was the publisher of a couple of Māori newspapers. She was very wealthy in her kind of later years. She also was a rangatira, you know, she's chiefly born, a staunch advocate for for women having a voice. There are so many and we are only just scratching the surface. But while these women made a stand to have their say and join the suffrage movement, it also came at a cost. They were kind of being forced to adopt certainly a Christian framework, but even a a potentially anti-Māori framework, uh, you know, one that certainly had no understanding of and no respect for their own cultural practice of, you know, mokokoai. Māori women were presented with a pledge from the WCTU. So the temperance pledge says, I agree by this pledge not to smoke tobacco, not to drink any beverages that are intoxicating, and also not to take the tāmoko, may God help me. You know, on one hand, it's a vow to to join this temperance movement, and and you know, which was all about prohibition of alcohol and tobacco, which was introduced by the Europeans in the first place and used as a tool against Maori, which we'll get into shortly. In order to to have that bit, you've got to give up your cultural practices. Which is like asking a new migrant to stop speaking their own language or creating a law that says Muslims can no longer wear the hijab. Hmm. When we look back, it's around that time that tamuko and uh, mukukowai start to, uh, you know, not disappear, but become much less common. 
to have it though. I mean, do you think maybe Pākehā women saw it as being intimidating? Most of these things that um, you know can come across as racist are generally related to fear and ignorance. So I think it's probably both of those things happening. Yeah, I mean, I think the Temperance Union women might have thought, oh, that's you know, it's unsightly, or oh, that's that's one of those savage things. We just don't really know because we don't have any writing around that. But to me, that Temperance Pledge, I hadn't heard about it until I started researching for this documentary, and I'm pretty well versed in a lot of women's history and, and Māori history. Under those circumstances, there must have been Māori women who opposed the pledge for that very reason, because nobody gives up their cultural identity and all that it embodies lightly. Suggesting that Māori women all just gave in and went, OK, you know, we won't do that, is definitely false. But it was a really powerful movement, the WCTU. That also could be another reason why we don't have more Māori names on the, the petition. You know, I think that as a society of New Zealanders, we actually need to know things like that and we need to think back to to how that has had an impact and how that racial disparity has uh, been swept under the rug when we when we think back to our glorious suffrage past. We'll come back to Lizzie shortly, but it's also interesting to think about how decisions like this reshape one sense of self and belonging, and how it's altered our understanding of the past. Kia ora, um, the reason I want to chat to Libby is that her great-great-great-grandmother was one of those Māori suffragists. Her name is Meriruhia or Meriruya Hakaraya. And this is where things get a bit confusing. You know how Stephanie mentioned the problem of finding Māori names on the petition? Well, Meriruhia had a series of names she used, including... Her father's name, uh, Pahika, um, Pahika Hakaraya. She also had Pākehā names. Bevan, Te Wainui was another name. So why so many names and what did they represent? Meriruia was um, a rangatira, so she came from rangatira whānau. Um, but she also married a Pākehā called Zachariah Bevan. And here's an interesting thing, because Zachariah Bevan then had a Māori name, Hakaraya Tefena. So she was also known by her Pākehā name, Mary Bevan which is the name she signed on the 1893 Women's Suffrage Petition. And when it comes to signing any kind of document, Libby says decisions are never made lightly. And especially decisions that um, of a magnitude of you know something like the suffrage petition, because it wouldn't have been a popular thing. Women of the day were being derided as troublemakers, but someone with her strength and her chiefliness to have her come to that, I think would have definitely provided a buffer. But she signed it in her English name as well, which is interesting. I think she did that because she could. She was saying, if I sign it in my name, will that make me less? No. But will it be seen to be a less thing? Possibly. And I have the right to call myself by both names. And some of her business dealings, some of, you know, she uses the name Mary Bevan. So I think because she could, she did. <laughs> you know? It's fascinating. And when I think about it, I also have a Chinese name, which I barely can pronounce. I haven't even changed my maiden names on some of my documents. So I guess people make decisions about the name they use, depending on the circumstance. Other women had Māori names and they, they used transliterations of those names, you know, in the Pākehā world. And 
Others will have been born with Pākehā names because that was coming into vogue. It was sort of culturally essential, I think, in some parts of society to have a Pākehā name and not use a Māori name. But conversely, there are a few women on the petition who have signed with a Māori name. We've gotten really excited, but then upon researching them, it has turned out that they are Pākehā women because Māori names were coming into fashion for Pākehā women. You know, we're talking about being born in the time of change, in the power base, if you like, was starting to shift. And people like Miriru here and definitely her parents were aware of what was going on and they were at very big hui. They would have been at those hui to decide about the kingi tanga. They would know these people. It had had only been, when she was born, a matter of months since active engagement with British and colonial forces, let alone knowing in her close story wars between other tribes and that knowledge in itself is power. They had great land holdings, um, not just around Rotorua, but also around Takafia in the north and uh, the middle of the North Island. In this photo, the, this big, mm. this large framed image, how old do you think she is? I mean, she's still got quite soft features. Mm, I, I would think we're looking at Miri um, Ruiha at around sort of in mid-30s, I would think. Really? Meruru here in this large black and white framed photograph plucked from the wall of Libby's auntie's house shows a woman with soft eyes. Her long wavy hair is half up and parted in the centre. She wears a tusk pendant around her neck and beside it a flower pinned to a high collar of what looks like a printed silk blouse. So what was she like? I mean, she was an astute person. She came from astute um, parents. She saw herself as um, an equal to Pākehā in the town. And people would visit her, Māori and Pākehā alike. Whether it was coming to, to see her as a medicine woman or coming to see her as a businesswoman. She was also involved in committees of the day and had interest in women's affairs. She didn't just sort of decide one day to sign the suffrage petition. You know, she was known to hold discussion, to have discourse with all sorts of people about, you know, things that were occurring in not only in the township of Ōtaki, but up into Rotorua, where her father's um, whānau um, came from. Because these people travelled constantly. And in our day, they're still hui-hopping, if you like, travelling, but Māori Land Court um, officers were coming to meet with them. She had an opinion and she expressed it. And I think that's the difference when we talk about rangatira Māori, wahini, uh, rangatira wahini. You know, they came from chiefly stock and they had an opinion and it was sought because they had land and they had things to back it up, you know. Um, you wanted to do business with them. She also had... 11 children. And large families for Māori were important. Because the Māori population had declined so much. Historian Barbara Brooks. So by... You know, by the 1890s, it's like 40,000. So it's absolutely crucial for the future of the race for Māori women to bear healthy children. Because there had been quite a bout of illness, and was that due to the venereal diseases? Oh, well, part, I mean, venereal diseases impacted on fertility, but all the introduced diseases um, Māori had no immunity to. So they're more likely to die of things like measles or whooping cough, you know, things that they'd never experienced before. And also, with their uh, dispossession, their living conditions declined. You know, their susceptibility to typhoid and waterborne illnesses because of bad hygiene increased because they're made to move from their traditional settlements where they had life well organised 
to much inferior living arrangements. So, you know, it's really around 1900, early 1900s, that that population decline starts reversing. Back to Libby and her great-great-great-grandmother becoming part of the suffrage movement. So she would have known Rangitopi Ora. She was one of the first women to sign the Treaty of Waitangi. So, you know, they knew the weight of signing documents. It was rangatira to rangatira. I'm going to sign this because it gives me a, um, a place at the table. So what was in it for Meruruhia? Why was she supporting temperance? Temperance was around keeping the family safe, a reaction to the terrible um, alcoholism that was affecting communities. You know, alongside the changes that were happening in for Māori, the, you know, the influx of settlers, was also the culture was changing because with the settlers, um, a lot of them were running away from another life and they brought bad habits. And, you know, alcoholism, you know, was a scourge and Māori did take to the bottle, sometimes not by choice. If you could turn somebody into an alcoholic, you could take their land. If you got them down the race course, turn them into gamblers, temperance and the time, it's about who has the control. Because Māori had a lot to lose. And you had things like uh, Māori whānau who, when the land court came into their area, they sent out a whole lot of surveyors. And if, if Māori whānau couldn't pay the surveyors, then they, they couldn't afford to, to fight for their land. So land was such a vital part of that fight for Māori women to have a voice, to have some kind of political power. You know, it was, it was just being stolen left, right and centre. And another way to take Māori land was through marriage. Yeah, because if a Māori woman married a Pākehā man under the, um, you know, the kind of Christian um, colonial system, then she lost all of her property rights, um, whereas, you know, that, that didn't happen in traditional Māori society. You know, land was passed down, uh, often from, from mother to daughter. It didn't change whether they were married or not. So we know that land was important to Māori, and holding on to it was tantamount to survival. But were Pākehā only marrying Māori women for the sake of land? Barbara Brooks says no. You know, people probably fell in love, and just as men could take Pākehā women's property, they could with Māori women as well. You know, I think there were a lot of close relationships formed. But I wonder whether Pākehā men also saw an opportunity to raise their own status in society if they married a Māori woman of high rank. You know, I'm always reminded of the story of Tirangi Hiroa, Peter Buck, who um, first wanted to marry a Māori woman, but her family didn't regard him as high enough status, so he was rejected. So he ended up marrying a Pākehā woman. So, you know, it's odd in the way these things work, isn't it? And there's status in both societies about who should marry whom. Libby Hakaraya's forebears were well established in the Ōtaki area and in the late 1800s still had a very strong Māori influence and we also have very strong relationships that Māori, if you like, in Ōtaki um, had cultivated with early settlers. Now the thing about her great-great-great-grandmother Meruruhia is that she had quite a bit of property in Ōtaki which included a number of pubs. And back then, there was quite a bit of segregation in New Zealand, and this also meant... Māori weren't allowed to drink in these establishments. You know, there was also this thing that when men did come back from the war in Wellington, you could not go to um, public houses. Māori. Segregation was still very much a a part of this country, you know. Um, But that's not the story I hear up the coast. That's not the story we hear about, um, you know, the bars in Ōtaki. 
the public houses, the Telegraph Hotel, the Family Hotel, those places still stand in Ōtaki today. But back then, women also weren't allowed to enter pubs or hotels. I mean, they were, weren't the domain of a, of a woman. Mm. My father's mother, she was known as to be a formidable uh, woman, absolutely formidable, the eldest of 18. So she ran the, her family and ran her town wow. <laughs> and ran, pretty much ran, you know, the Telegraph Hotel as well. That place, you know, people would walk in there and she would, you know, she would manaki all of them, look after people. These places were, were public gathering places. I don't think they were always drunken holes where people just, you know, drunk to, for, to forget. And after the wars, these were places where men did come to, to um, I guess, to, to seek out oh, all sorts of things, companionship, to talk. So while she joined the Women's Christian Temperance Union, it's hard to say why she was fighting for a movement that would actually place restrictions on the consumption and sale of alcohol and directly affect her businesses. So maybe for Meridu here, joining the temperance movement was more about the inequalities in society at the time, granted that she felt she was on par with Pākehā. I don't know, was she defending the businesses that she ran with her husband? Now, Livy today is very aware that she comes from a line of strong Māori women. You know, we often talk about a trait running in the family that it, whilst we don't regard ourselves as a matriarchal community, there is no doubt at home in Ōtaki that our Māori, our kuia Māori, our Māori women, our aunties, our grandmothers, they are the ones that, you know, are sought for decision-making within the whānau. They are leaders and they have a strong role to play. I don't know what it was like in other communities, and I and I certainly don't think that every Māori woman in our community had as equal say, because these are women that are schooled within Māori knowledge to grow a future. So they 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 have a you know a great deal of a responsibility, but they would have earned the right to have that. I mean, what do you think one of the, the biggest misconceptions that we might have about women in, in New Zealand history? The misconception I tried to address in my book was that somehow British society was more enlightened about the role of women than Māori society. You know, that somehow they were bringing civilization, where in fact what they did was remove rights from Māori women. I mean, one of the interesting things, I think, is the waves of migration into New Zealand. So, you know, prior to 1840, you have whalers and sealers who enter relationships with Māori women, and some choose to stay, and they might then actually marry a Pākehā woman. And if you want to make it in society, you might not want to have a Māori wife. But on the other hand, uh, you know, there were some really important Māori women leaders. What was the attitude towards mixed-race children? One theory was that they were more healthy and likely to enhance fertility in Māori communities. I mean, partly venereal disease has been introduced to Māori society by the sailors, so mm -hmm. fertility declines. I mean, New Zealand doesn't have a word for mixed-race children that some societies have to mark them out. I'm not aware of a huge prejudice against them. And on that note, 
I think it's time to move forward. I'm keen to take a look at what it means to be a Māori woman today and also to look at New Zealand's increasing multicultural landscape to take a look at some of the cultural barriers and obstacles for women of colour, starting with... Paula Morris, and I'm a writer from Auckland. Uh, my iwi affiliations are Ngāti Wai and Ngāti Whātua. My hapu is Ngāti Manuhiri. And our Mariah's Omaha, near Lee and Parkery Beach, on the northeast coast of the North Island. And Paula has a close connection with her Māori heritage. But at first sight, you might not even pick it. You know, however off-white our skin is, doesn't mean that my father was not Kerry and his mother was not Jane to Kerry and her father was Kerry and his mother was Rahui to Kerry and her father was to Kerry and I'm part of that line. I'm Paula Jane Kerry Morris. That is my lineage. I'm very proud of it and part of what ties me to this place. So it is really important. A strong lines going back to England as well and relatives there and the places that my mother and her mother and her mother before her came. And sometimes those threads get very frayed or they're almost invisible, but still they're there. Did any of your forebears actually sign the 1893 petition from what you know? I'm not sure at all. And I, I've been looking back through my grandmother's uh, voting records, through the electoral records, to see when she was first registered to vote just out of interest and then see if I could see if her mother was registered to vote. But either the records are still quite partial or I can't find them. Or maybe her forebears are on the parts of the petition that got lost in transit. Or perhaps they were some of those women who refused to give up their moko in order to join the WCTU. But what's interesting for Māori is that they didn't have to register births or deaths. Like Paula's grandmother, who was born a decade after the suffrage petition. And one could argue that if you're not registered, well, do you even exist? Yes, because when... um my grandmother went to get a passport in the 1970s. She was told that there was no record of her birth, and she said, well, here I am. Obviously, she existed, but there is no birth record or birth certificate. There is something written in the family Bible. She was the oldest um, in her family. Paula's connection to her Māori heritage is undeniable, but it wasn't easy growing up. At school, I was conscious very early that to be Māori had pejorative connotations. The Māori kids were the naughty kids at school. They were the poor kids. They were the ones that came without shoes on. I was very prissy. I always had my shoes on. My brother took his off. Um, And they were not the academic ones. And once, when I was about five, my mother came up to school to complain I was being terrorised by some other child. And the teacher said, well, the thing is, Mrs Morris, um, this person is a a Māori boy and Māori children are very naughty, and Paula's not used to that. And my mother was outraged, of course, and said something like, you know, Paula's met more Māoris than you've had hot dinners. And once I made the mistake of telling a teacher who was visiting from England that my um, that my great-grandmother was a Māori princess, and after that I got really bullied for some time by some other girls who, of course, thought I committed the unforgivable sin of showing off and skiting and thinking I was someone. So by the time I got to high school, I knew not to put my hand up when they said, could all the Māori kids identify themselves and stay after assembly? I just thought nothing good could come of that. You would either be in trouble for something or forced to be part of a group that I didn't want to be part of. What were they made to do? And looking back, I mean, it was probably just sort of encouraging you to take part in the kapahaka group and 
and perhaps, you know, study te reo, you know, beyond third form when we all did it. It probably was something incredibly, you know, banal like that. It could have even involved opportunities. But at the time, to me, it was safer just to keep my head down. And I think for a long time it felt that way. Paula went to university and even though you'd expect people to be a lot more open and liberal, she encountered the opposite. I started to hear more racist things, I guess. Well, you know, there are no full-blooded Maoris anymore. Sometimes just to annoy them, I'd say, well, my grandmother is, which, by the way, was untrue. But to kind of shock them into silence and just to make them realise that they didn't know who they were speaking to. And even once someone I knew who was older than me and an American person... um, She said to me, well, you're not really Māori. She said, you're at university. I mean, this was the 80s, and you could say times have changed. I don't know that they've quite changed entirely, but at that time you were always conscious that you were the exception and that it wasn't necessarily a great thing in either way. I mean, I always make the point in things that I write in public is that we have never had blood quantum in New Zealand as they did in America It's not like you are X proportion black and therefore you are this and therefore you cannot own property and so on. We've never had that. And saying fractions makes no sense. Who is what here? Is someone a quarter Irish, an eighth Scottish? I mean, it just, it starts to get crazy. What you're thinking about is what are your inheritances and what are your different cultural influences and your cultural... Yeah, your cultural lines of, of belonging. Names have been something of a theme in this episode. So what does a name mean to Paula? In New Zealand, we are so ignorant of the past and of our history. Many Māori people have got Pākehā last names, not because, you know, they have drunk from the goblet of blood quantum, but because there are no such things as Māori last names. Māori people didn't have last names. And the missionaries arrived and said... You know, we're giving you a Christian name now and your old name will be your last name or you will have to pick a last name. In our family, we had no last name until the 1890s and then my great-grandfather picked one and that's what we were. From one line of kiddies to another. My my grandmother, she was a dark-skinned woman and she married a Pākehā man and was always very ashamed of the fact that she was Māori and she had brown skin, to see. Labour MP... Kitty Allen. My aunties and uncles had reflections of her trying to put powder on uh, white flour on her skin and she would only ever hang the laundry out in the evenings because she didn't want the neighbours to see her. So incredibly um, strong woman in terms of uh, raising the family and doing it on her own, carrying a lot of um, mamai or, or hurt or, you know, um, about her role in the world and that, you know, that passed through to the generations. So. I mean, would you say it sort of even filtered down into how you see yourself as Māori? Uh, it certainly filtered down to my parents' generation. And then I'd say that there was a reclamation in my generation due largely in part to the social movements that came out of the 70s. Like the Black Civil Rights Movement and then in the 80s with the treaty movements. In tonight's programme, we take a look at the recent Waitangi Day celebrations, which was marred according to... the disastrous effects that a society without law would have had on both the Maori people and the new settlers. And we established a nation with law. We established a nation 
making it visible and okay to be Māori in a country where it hadn't been so much so. And this is where the decisions that are made in our history begin to shape and affect society in the future and what we have today. For those who aren't Pākehā in this country, being of colour is layered with tension and competing forces that can't always be outwardly expressed. And unlike the past where women were proud to be Māori, Kitty and her mother and grandmother grew up at a time where all of that had changed. It was a very negative thing to be Māori. It was something to be ashamed of. I remember one teacher when we were uh, 14 years old said, oh, well, all you girls are Māoris, uh, you'll be pregnant by the age of 15, so we'll give you sex ed early. You know? So <laughs> these statements are pretty overt. <laughs> I'm gobsmacked. Yeah, so it wasn't too long ago, you know, I'm early 30s. So. Do you think that is still happening today, though, that there is that perception of that, that kind of reinforces all of those negative stereotypes and that those children kind of, it starts to filter and permeate into their mindsets of, well, you know, my potential is limited at that because... I think that um, through the experiences I see frequently all throughout um, our communities, throughout the country. I I think, yes, that's absolutely still a stigma that many children go to school with. I think that that's reflected uh, right through systemically through to things like our justice system. We know that there was the police commissioner not so long ago accepted that there was systemic uh, racism um, when it came to police practices. So... Yeah, that stuff's still going on and uh, we've got a bit of work to do as a country, I think. But my question is, how can we foster change in our way of thinking and then implement that change? Some might say it's about seeing ourselves reflected back. Hello. Hi. Hi, I'm Tay Tibble is an emerging Māori writer. She graduated with a Master's in Creative Writing from the International Institute of Modern Letters at Victoria University in 2017, where she was also awarded the Adam Foundation Prize. I met up with her at her Wellington flat to discuss why nuance is important in telling Māori stories, but also in shaping a Māori identity. Identity politics. I buy a Mana Party t-shirt from AliExpress, $9.99, free shipping. I wear it as a dress with thigh-high vinyl boots and fishnets. I post a picture to Instagram. Rihanna and Kim Kardashian shimmering in Swarovski crystals makes my eyes glow with seeing. I am inhaling long white clouds and icy rivers. Searching through archives of advertisements, welcome to the wonderland of the South Pacific. Tiki bars, traffic light cocktails and paper umbrellas tell me, am I navigating correctly? What were we celebrating? The 6th of February, the anniversary of the greatest failed marriage this nation has ever seen. I was born in Wellington and raised here and my family come from Te Araroa, Ngāti Parautifana, Apanui, up the east coast. The first time I went back there was when I was 19 for my nana's tangi. My mum was very interested in just like... Um, She's like really interested in like activism and our history. So I didn't grow up um, like immersed in Te Ao Māori, but I grew up like learning about a history. And... and that history is beautifully infused into her first book of poetry, Pocahangatis. Sensitivity. 248 years since Captain Cook landed. 14 years since Whale Rider was released. Keisha Castle Hughes is speared through the heart by a white man with a ship. In the television series, Game of Thrones, season seven, episode three, 
52 minutes and 22 seconds in. Fate, positive representations of Māori in the media have been few and far between, and looking for those role models on our screens has been a challenge. So you find your own weird bits of representation. I didn't see myself reflected. I got attached to like Nicole Scherzinger because she's Hawaiian, or like Pocahontas. Because they're the closest thing that you can closest find. Closest things right? that you can find, yeah. And how you kind of have to almost appropriate those things. And while writing the collection of poems, at the forefront of Tay's mind was to tell the kinds of stories that we're not so used to hearing and different representations of everyday Māori women that don't conform to a prescriptive stereotype. To try and represent the identity of Māori women in like a way that was nuanced. One of the early first poems um, in the 1960s, Influx of Māori Women, that's talking about like Māori women living this like catch quintessential like 60s life. In Wellington, and when I was writing it, I was thinking about like how this, if they were like, if this story that I'm like writing this poem, if these, if the story belonged to a Pakeha woman, perhaps it wouldn't be that essential. But because it's a Maori woman doing these like kitschy Pakeha, <laughs> I guess esque things, all these like urban activities, then it like more of a sense of urgency. But you're kind of sort of elevating their presence in a kind of a hyper-normal way, in a, yeah. way a way to put it. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And that's like the other thing that I think is like happens concurrently or in the collection is that there's a Māori identity, but also it's very much having an urban identity or, you know, a millennial identity at the same time. So like those, not, they're never at the expense of each other. Pocahanatis, an essay about Indigenous hairdos and don'ts. In the beginning, the earliest memory to survive the red fog of infancy reveals your great-grandmother on her bed, cutting the thick peppery plait falling down her back with a blunt pair of orange-handled scissors. Remember the resistance. Imagine if the ropes of Maui had snapped and the world had been plunged back into the womb of darkness. After she died, you found it again, coiled and paled like the skin of an ancient snake. You held it to your throat, between her unwanted fur coats and felt like Cleopatra deciding not to wait for the Romans. This poem takes me back to my mother's stories about her mother cutting off her long ponytail before making a journey from Guangzhou, China to New Zealand, where she settled in Tewa Mutu, leaving her old life behind, along with a sense of identity and carving out a new path. And speaking of Chinese women, Stephanie Lash managed to find one on the 1893 suffrage petition. With Minialu, she has signed with her mother, uh, Margaret, and she and two of her sisters, Lena and Agnes, also signed the 1892 petition, which was the one that directly preceded the big 1893 one. They didn't sign the next one, maybe they went home that day, mm. but um, she did sign with her mother. Her mother was Irish, so her father was Chinese. He was from Guangdong province. They met and married in Australia, where they ran the first Chinese restaurant. It was popular, and it was immortalised in cartoons, and so you can look up this the details of this so restaurant and people it, liked the food then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was in 1851, I believe he started that restaurant. And Minnie was born in 1874, so her um, her elder siblings were all born in Australia. 
in Victoria. And then when they moved over to New Zealand, Minnie's parents settled in Queenstown, where she and her two younger brothers were born, to make a family of nine. And her father worked as a police constable and an interpreter. So, And then you know, he and her mother kept a hotel, and they had various jobs. And they're mentioned in the paper quite often, um, sometimes in the social pages. Let's say the family was well-respected here. I think they came over in about 1868, so that's that's after the first gold rush had begun. It's just before the poll tax. The poll tax was instituted in 1881 as a constable and an interpreter. John Alou would have been seen as a sort of, you know, a pillar of the community and a, a kind of respectable example of a Chinese immigrant. So for those migrants who could seamlessly assimilate into New Zealand culture and society, they were embraced with open arms. And in many ways, I think the same thing still stands today. If I could see myself reflected, I would be a Shanghai girl in the Chinese turquoise chong sam with a pleasant half-smile and perfect bow-like lips, my jet-black shiny hair set in finger waves and a string of pearls draped across my chest. But in reality, I'm the girl trapped between two worlds. Being a woman of colour in a predominantly white society is layered with complexity. As a Chinese woman born in New Zealand, there are subtle cultural rules that I've had to adhere to, to be seen and not heard at Get all good time. grades, to use chopsticks without crossing them, to be proficient with a knife and to fork, marry well, to not speak my to mind, to a stereotype of the hard-working, submissive Asian, to not mention sex, to cover up any hurt with a smile, so that no one would ever know I was struggling inside. Here's Rosabelle Tan. I'm the founding editor of The Pantograph Punch and the artistic director of Satellites, which is a series of events showcasing contemporary Asian artists in Auckland. You know, the whole myth of the model minority means that actually some of my personality characteristics are aligned with that stereotype. Which one would they be? (laughs) Just being like a nerd and I guess maybe hardworking, like a high achiever. Those things are not things which I want to reject, but at the same time it's negotiating the understanding that people will associate that with a personality type or a stereotype. So what does it mean for Rosabelle to be Chinese in New Zealand? Is she allowed to speak up and say what she thinks and maybe even kick up a fuss, like the woman who got the suffrage petition moving over 100 years ago? The answer is... No, you have to be submissive and... Keep your head down and respect your elders. (laughs) Yeah. That's the expectation. In terms of being both Asian and identifying as a woman, definitely each additional identifier adds an extra kind of weight or burden or responsibility. And it's quite difficult to unravel those things and examine them separately. I have been in situations where it's not even that people are surprised that I'm speaking but that people just don't even seem to hear me and that's not an uncommon experience and I feel like it's that thing you have to say something three times before someone even hears you. Being heard or feeling like someone is really truly speaking to you with a shared experience is so important especially if you live in a culture where you don't feel you totally fit in. Definitely and I think those stories are so important. Um, I don't know if you've read Jenny Zhang's Sour Heart, a series of short stories that 
I really connected with about young teenage girls growing up in New York. You know, it is about Chinese culture, it's also about being an immigrant, and it's also about being a young girl and how all those worlds collide. But expressing something of your own experiences can create some vulnerability too. When I was doing my Masters in Creative Writing, I really didn't want to be an Asian writer. Why is that? I think part of it is when you're just starting out and trying to figure out who you are, you don't want to be pigeonholed or relegated to only being able to tell a certain kind of story. I really resisted it, but ironically, those were my best stories as well. Would you have felt that coming out, I mean, coming out as as an Asian woman, which you are, Mm. and kind of doing that in an overt way, did you feel that you would be marginalised? And is that only problematic because you already feel marginalised? It would have marginalised me as a writer because there would have been an expectation that I would tell a certain kind of story and no other kind of story. And that story would be one of, you know, immigrant trauma. I definitely do think there is an expectation of that. I think if you look at any... The writers who are writers of colour who are writing stories are not writing carefree stories for the most part. And there is a sort of institutional expectation, but there's also an expectation that's internalised too. There are a multitude of cultural layers and values that affect a woman's choices about how she presents herself to the world. And for the most part, those remain largely invisible, yet they can't be erased. I understand where these women are coming from, what it might mean to not feel completely like myself, to have to discover and to rediscover the parts that I know to be true, parts that have been suppressed, and what it means to play another role so that I could be accepted in the eyes of others. So the organisations that started the National Council Women, there were a dozen of them, and they were representative of uh, a number of institutions at the time, the Tayloress Union, Salvation Army, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and so they were groups of women that were either brought together because of their faith or because of labour or their jobs or their communities. This is Vanessa Deru. She's a high achiever who works as a consultant in the NGO sector in Wellington. She's New Zealand-born Indian and she's also the president of the National Association of Women, an organisation that was largely Pākehā and established by our very own suffragist, Kate Shepherd. So to be in her shoes this year, 125 years on, is quite unreal. And I guess I've fitted in because all my life uh, my parents and my family have been about working for equality and uh, growing up um, on the corner dairy with my parents and any person that came into our store was to be treated equally. Something that I've brought through to my life and uh, in my career and it's been really useful and helpful in terms of the work of the National Council of Women because we're a representative now of 50 organisations, 16 branches and over 450 members. So we represent almost 450,000 people in New Zealand and they all come from different walks of life and so seeing and understanding their views and taking those views to people that are influencing change for the betterment of New Zealand is a real honour. Vanessa has worked tirelessly over the years volunteering for a range of organisations and now to be standing in Kate Shepard's shoes as a non-Pākehā New Zealander 
Well, surely that in itself is reflective of huge change for women in New Zealand, something that even Kate Shepard would never have seen coming. If you want to create change and see a difference in the world that you live in, you've got to put your your own foot forward. I've always been one to see an opportunity and see if I can help contribute to make change. And I guess when you see something that has got such great history uh, and has got a real ability to change, you want to be part of that. I mean, so you are basically being the change that you know, other women of colour might want to see. I guess, you know, whoever you are and whatever background you bring, you bring everything to your role. And um, so I come from an ethnic background, but close your eyes, listen to my voice, I sound like a Kiwi. My mum was born in Danivirk, my dad was born in India. My parents, like most parents in New Zealand, just want the best education for their kids, and that's what um, my parents certainly did for my brother and I. You know, growing up in an Indian culture, even though, you know, grew up on macaroni cheese and chicken curry. Uh, my parents certainly had views on what I would do versus what my brother would do. And I guess that's the stereotypes and the challenges that we're trying to get people to think about now in New Zealand, because it's that sort of thinking, that sort of attitude, behaviour, a lot of the changes um, that we want to see, but we haven't been able to get progress Vanessa says today the movement is driving towards equality across the board and diversity encompasses gender, religion and culture. We really want to get you know, women into leadership positions. We want to remove domestic violence statistics from our, um, from our statistics in New Zealand and we want to be um, one of the best countries to have good education, not low poverty. How do we do that? We've got to be able to try and get some equality into our thinking and have people think about, well, you know, if you're a female, should you just be able to have the same opportunities as a male? And the answer is yes. But being from another culture as a woman isn't always so clear-cut. Here's comedian Angela Dravid, who you heard in the last episode. For my Indian side, I never really felt like I had that much of an opinion. It's the same sort of thing with my Samoan side as well. You're kind of supposed to be seen but not really heard. It kind of makes you a prisoner inside your own family because your, your family is supposed to be a, a place where you develop and grow and you're, you're nurtured. And when you're not really encouraged it in your family, it makes it very hard outside in your social groups to build that confidence to get friends to talk about things. But the sides of her cultural makeup have meant that there are at times conflicting messages going on about how to behave and what you have the right to say. My mum never spoke Samoan around the house unless she was telling us off. Uh, my dad didn't speak Tamil or Marathi in the house. We, we all spoke English. So I present myself more white than I do cultural. Just because um, I've been brought up as a Kiwi I have some kind of privilege because my family see me as more white than they are. But it also means that if I have something to say about family things, I don't get listened to. But I wonder if these mixed messages and multiple layers of identity are still a hurdle for Angela, or are they a thing of the past? Like I've been brought up in two cultures that where a woman is, has to censor herself. My dad told me off of being vulgar a couple of years ago when he came what to see my show. Really? I said something, I, I have a joke, a, a toe job joke or something, and he um, he was disgusted by it. And I guess that's the difference between my generation and maybe his generation is that I ignored it. It's because it was the first time I'd been able to have a voice and 
It's taken me so long to overcome whatever fears I had to get through to it. Another time I was with a really skinny guy and I had to stop in the middle of it. Because I was like, I think we look like a hot dog. Do you see it as a political act for you to be up there, in a way? Yes, I sort of do. But I also want to challenge myself more to do more content about being Islander and Indian, because a lot of my content isn't. And that's because most of the audiences who come to comedy crowds are white. So it's like I have to kind of be accessible. But at the same time, we can't get away from the way that you look. Yes. I'm trying to be the person that I wish I had seen when I was a kid. Just someone who looked like me. You've been listening to Beyond Kate. Special thanks to to Papa, Natonga Sound and Vision and Archives New Zealand. The 1893 Women's Suffrage Petition is housed at Hitohu, the National Library of New Zealand. Thanks also to Shannon Honui-Thompson. The studio engineer for this episode was Mark Chesterman. The dialogue coach for the series and podcast team is Adam McCauley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. And I'm your host and producer, Sonia Sly. Next time on Beyond Kate, we explore some women who've been left off our history books. Now, if you'd like to subscribe or listen again, you can head to Apple Podcasts, Podbeam, Stitcher, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you soon. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.